Mark chapter 14, if you would, Mark chapter 14, verse number 1. After two days, it was uh, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, notice this, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came Notice this, having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. She broke the flask and she poured it on his head, but there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than, notice, 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. Whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She's done what she could. She has come beforehand. This is really interesting to anoint my body for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you, carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say, The master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room? in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. The there make ready for us. So his disciples went out, they came to the city, and they found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. In the evening he came with the twelve. And as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Verse 19. And they began to be sorrowful. And they said to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is the one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them and said, Take eat, this is my body. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Truly I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts in these moments that remain today. I ask God that you would give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us. I pray, God, that you would anoint me, though I do not deserve that. I have not earned it, but I need that. Supernaturally captivate our attention. Let us hear the word of the Lord and let that word change and transform us in these moments together, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we begin the what is the final movement of Mark's gospel. And uh, we're going to focus our attention today and next week. We will conclude the series on Mark uh, next Sunday. But we focus our attention on the Passion Week, or what we call, or what we call the Passion Week, which is the final week of Jesus moving toward the cross. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, he was always at conflict with the religious leaders. And uh, reader, could you give me just a little bit more monitor, if you don't mind? 
Um, from the beginning of his ministry, he was always in conflict with the religious leaders. Uh, he had cursed the fig tree. He had driven out the changers of money. He had rebuked uh, the Jews strongly with the parable about the landowner and how they had beaten the prophets and ultimately would crucify the Son of God. And so the anger of the Jewish leaders was not at all pacified, but it actually was elevated and really was at an all-time high as we move into chapter 14. It's a very simple message this morning. I'm going to move through it quickly. And let me just set you up. There are three movements in this message, and there are three questions that these three movements will force us to ask ourselves. The first movement and the first question is this, how much do you, how much do we value Jesus? I want you to think about that question for just a moment. How much do I value him? Now, in these first 26 verses, there are five scenes. I'm going to move through them rapidly. There are four main characters. Let me talk about the five scenes first. Number one, there is the scene of the chief priest, and they are plotting to arrest and ultimately kill Jesus. This was feast week in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would swell during feast week. The population would swell somewhere between 50,000 to 250,000 more people would pile into the city of Jerusalem during feast week. Religious leaders did not want to cause a riot. And they were afraid if they arrested Jesus publicly during that week, it would stir the crowds up. And they would turn against them. So they are plotting to kill Jesus, but they want to do it privately so that they will not stir up the crowd. The second scene is the woman who anoints Jesus in the house of Simon. We notice this pure devotion of this anonymous woman. And we notice it and we compare it. And it is dramatically contrasted to the treachery of the religious leaders who, while she is pouring out her everything on Jesus, they are plotting to kill the master. Mark doesn't name this woman, but it is likely she is the same woman that John chapter 12 speaks about. And this is Mary who pours out this precious ointment on Jesus. The best ointment in the ancient East was always kept in an alabaster vessel. It was a very expensive vessel, probably an heirloom that had been passed down from family member to family member. And the value of that ointment, listen to this, the value of the ointment that she pours out on the head of Jesus was what today would be about $15,000. That's how much and how precious and how valuable the ointment or the oil That she poured on the head of Jesus was. The disciples were angry. They couldn't believe that such a gift would be wasted on the master. And again, we see, even in their attitude, how isolated Jesus must have been. Here he is on his way to the cross, and they're worried about throwing this money away that could have gone in the treasury and accomplished something great. What is really interesting is that Jesus is actually. Prophesying. I want you to watch this. He says to the disciples, leave the lady alone because the poor you always have with you, but she is actually preparing my body for burial. 
How interesting is it that Jesus is crucified just as the Sabbath is about ready to begin. And so they get his body down quickly and they take his body to the tomb, but they can't anoint it and prepare it because the Sabbath is coming. And so on the first day of the week, the ladies show up and what do they show up to do? To anoint and prepare the body of Jesus, but it's already been done. He's already out of the tomb. This woman did it, and Jesus prophesied about her doing it when she anoints Jesus in the home of Simon. The third scene in these opening verses is Judas and the chief priest. They were delighted that Judas, one of the twelve, would give them a private place to arrest Jesus. Matthew 7, or excuse me, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, tells us that the price that Judas sold Jesus for, get this, was simply a hundred denarii that was worth about $5,000 today. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Judas received one-third of what that woman poured out on the head of Jesus. As she honored him and worshipped him, Judas got about a third of that. He sold Jesus for a third of the price that the woman, as she poured out her oil on Jesus and anointed him, was willing to give. The Old Testament says that an owner of an ox that gores a slave has to pay the owner of a slave 100 denarii. That was the price paid for Jesus, the same amount that would have to be paid if you had an ox that gored someone else's slave, you'd have to pay the owner of the slave that amount of money. Then the fourth scene is the preparing of the Last Supper. With the large crowds, it could be difficult to find a place to eat the Passover. It had to be, according to Jewish law, someplace inside the city limits, but they had to act with some secrecy. And so they had made no arrangements ahead of time, but Jesus had, and he sent his disciples, go into the city, he said, and when you see a man carrying a pot of water, which was very unusual. It was always the women doing that. So this would stand out when you see a man carrying a pot of water, water, follow him. And where he goes in, tell him you need that place for the Passover. Jesus already had it worked out, had supernaturally planned ahead of time for there to be a place where the Passover could be shared together. And then the final scene is the Last Supper, verses 17 through 26. They come into the room after dark. Because the day, the Sabbath begins at sunset and it ends the next sunset. The Passover celebrated Israel's exodus out of Egypt. But it was always celebrated with the expectation that this might be the day that we get our new and our full deliverance. Jesus announces that one of them is going to betray him. And they all ask, is it I? Am I the one? But Jesus dips the bread with the one who would betray him. And to betray one who had eaten with you was an especially treacherous act. At the Passover, there is really strong liturgy that takes place. There is food that is eaten, and then they stop for a while and they share testimonies. They explain what the meaning of the different cups would be. They would read from the Torah, the law. 
There were four different cups in that Passover meal, and they all come right out of Exodus 6. The promise of Exodus 6, four promises. Look at them on the screen. Number one, God said, I will bring you out. And then they would drink the first cup. The second promise would be, I will rid you of the bondage, your bondage. They would drink the second cup. The third cup would be, I will redeem you. And then they would always sing a hymn. From Psalm 118 to Psalm 122, which was a Hallel hymn. And then they would drink the fourth cup, which always was reminiscent of this fourth promise. I will take you for my people. But as we read the Gospels, we find out that after they drank the cup, they sang a hymn. Which means they had only drank the third cup. And Jesus said, I'll not drink the fruit of the vine with you again. That is, I won't drink the fourth cup with you until I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom, which we know to be the marriage supper of the lamb. When one day we will finish that meal that is left unfinished from the day that Jesus took the Passover with his disciples. There are four characters in these opening verses as well. The first is Jesus. It is clear, watch this, that Jesus is in control of all of the situation. He has never surprised. The chief priests are acting secretly as if to trick Jesus, but he knows their plans. He arranges secrecy for the Passover because he had to finish his work before he was arrested. Judas fools the other disciples, but he does not fool Jesus. Jesus is even in control of the anointing on his head at the house of Simon as he is prepared for burial. At the Passover, Jesus says, this is, listen, this is my body, which is broken for you. Get this. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is saying, this isn't taken from me. I am pouring it out for you. Jesus was in control every step of the way. Say amen if you believe that. He had this whole situation under control. The second character is the woman who anoints Jesus. The chief priests are paying money to destroy Jesus, but she gives much more to anoint him and prepare him for burial. The woman who had had very little instruction, unlike the disciples, the third group of people who should have known but acted surprised by the death of Jesus, the woman knows that Jesus won't be around long. And the important thing was devotion to him. She even demeans herself by rubbing his feet with her hair. The fourth person or the fourth character is Judas. Judas had been taught by Jesus. He had been loved by Jesus. He had watched Jesus perform miracles. Matter of fact, Judas had probably performed them himself. He had gone out in teams. And yet he sells, listen, look right here. Judas sells the most important person in the world for the price of a slave. And the woman who had so much less Valued Jesus above all else. And she gave up everything for him. She was acting out what Jesus instructed at the Last Supper. You have to take, eat my body. You have to drink my blood. You have to be devoted to me completely. She poured out everything. Because he was the most valuable treasure that one could ever meet. Let me ask you the question, what do you value? What value do you place on Jesus? What does your devotion show about how you value him? The second scene, the second movement, forces us to ask another question, and that is, how much do we trust the Father? So ask yourself this, how much do I value Jesus? And secondly, how much do I trust my Heavenly Father? 
I don't have time to read all the scriptures this morning, so I'm going to take you through the story, a story that you are probably pretty familiar with. But from the upper room, Jesus heads to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. He tells them that they are all going to scatter. They're all going to betray him and deny him. And they all say, no, 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 it's not going to be me. And Peter, of course, boldly speaks up and says, no way, it's not going to be, I'm not going to do it. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you know what? Before the rooster crows twice, you are going to have denied me three times. So Jesus predicts that denial. Isaiah, who prophesied of Jesus 700 years before Jesus came, please listen. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was a man of sorrows. When you read through the New Testament, you never see Jesus laughing. It never talks about him being happy or hilarious. I'm not saying he was not. I'm saying you can't find it in the text. But what the New Testament text does say is that Jesus often wept. He often cried. He was often anguished in his spirit. But as much sorrow as he had experienced up to this point, and as much grief as he had endured up to this point, there would be no sorrow and there would be no grief like he experienced in Gethsemane. Some call this the last temptation. It was so severe in Jesus that it evoked Sweat drops of blood from him. He was so anguished in spirit. It almost killed him. Mark chapter 14 verses 32 through 42. Tell us that Jesus went in Gethsemane. He took Peter, James and John with him. He told them to stay there and pray. And he went a little further and he began to cry out to God. And as he prayed, the text says that he was deeply distressed. And that he was troubled. And he sweat drops of blood. He came back. He found the disciples. They were asleep. He awakened them and told them that their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. He came a second time and he found them asleep after he prayed the same prayer. And again, he awakened them and said, why are you asleep? And he came a third time. And on the third time, he told them it was time to get up. Apart from Calvary, listen, there was no greater agony that Jesus had ever experienced or that any other human being had ever experienced. Let's look right here for just a moment. I, I want to ask you to think about this text in the next 10 minutes like you've never thought about it before. This text is sacred. This is holy ground. It is a what we get to see is, listen, is a supernatural struggle, a private conflict between Jesus and the Father. He had had previous encounters with Satan before. When he was tempted in the wilderness, Satan tried to deflect Jesus from the cross. In Matthew 16, when he announced his death and Peter said, no, it's not going to happen to you. What did Jesus do? He said, get behind me, Satan. Satan again was trying to deflect Jesus from the cross. Now in the garden. Satan shows up again. Luke twenty two fifty three. if you read it in Luke's gospel, and if you were to look at the Greek text, it would read like this. This is the hour of the power of the darkness. In other words, this is not just a, a, a dark hour. This is the hour of the power of the dark. This was Satan's last attempt to deflect Jesus from the cross. 
Because look right here. If Jesus had bypassed the cross, there would only be one place for you and I to spend eternity, and it would be hell. But Jesus did not detour from the cross, but instead went there. How many are thankful that he did that for us? And so Satan is trying to deflect him. But at the garden, the olive press, he tells his disciples to wait and pray. He takes the inner circle, the arrogant ones, probably to show them their weakness. He was distressed, which literally means to be amazed. But how could Jesus be amazed? He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. But the text says he was distressed. He was amazed. He was troubled, which means anguished to the level that is nearly incomprehensible. Can I ask you a question? What is it that amazed and anguished? One who is all-knowing. I, I want to, I don't have a lot of time, but I want to slow down here because I want you to walk away with this. Jesus is about to experience the Father's will as the sin bearer. He has never known sin before. He has never known the Father's wrath. I want you to put this up on the screen. I want to read it to you. When we wrestle with our sin, We are wrestling with our impulses to sin. We want to. We are bent that way. Jesus was wrestling with perfect holiness. He has known nothing but that. And yet now he must become sin. For every sinner for whom he died, he would take their eternal wrath. Yet he was without sin. That is why the struggle is so great. Listen, look at me for just a moment. When you're tempted, when I'm tempted, and we struggle, why are we struggling? Because our flesh wants to sin, doesn't it? We want to fail. The pleasure of sin lasts for a season. We want to do what we want to do. We want to feel good. We want to disobey. That's how we're bent. That's our struggle with sin. Not so Jesus. Jesus was perfect. What he was struggling with is he did not want to become sin. He was holy. He was perfect. And yet he wrestles. He says, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Habakkuk 1.13 says, he is too pure to look on that which is unholy. He cries out, Abba, Father, that is Papa, Daddy. It's an intimate. If there's any way to let this cup pass. It's amazing that in the midst of that wrestling match, he thinks of his disciples. He goes and finds them sleeping. Luke says they were asleep for sorrow. That is, they were depressed because things were falling apart. Sleep can become a tranquilizer for our fear and our depression. He warns them again. He returns to prayer. He comes a third time and finds them sleeping. But this third time, he comes, please get this. He has overcome the battle. This third time, he says, get up. The time is here. The Son of Man is going to betray. There is, there is a voice, a sound of victory in his voice. We read in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 45, and again 47 through 70. Jesus wakes them up and he hears the sound of the soldiers. They are in the garden. They have their they have their clubs, they have their torches. Judas has arranged that he will kiss. The one that they are to to arrest. John records Jesus saying, whom do you seek? 
And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And when he said, I love this, when he said that, they fell back. I mean, the, the, the power and the authority of his voice. But they stood back up. They arrested him. But now Jesus, look, is triumphant. The disciples are not. They flee. But he is triumphant in his resolve. He will go and meet the betrayer and the executor. Let me ask you this question. What caused Jesus to come out of Gethsemane? You go ahead and hit another screen or two. What caused Jesus to come out of Gethsemane with this triumphant submission? Why, after wrestling, was he so sure that he could take it? I would suggest to you, Hebrews 5 and verse 7 says that... um, In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, look at this, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. Jesus, listen, had entrusted himself to his father. He knew that he could trust his father. The psalmist had said of the Messiah in Psalm 16, you will not leave my soul in hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus was wrestling and finally said, not my will, but thine. And he comes out triumphant because, listen, he had trusted the father and had submitted himself fully to his will. It was trust. How much do you trust him? How much do you value Jesus? How much do you trust the Father? And number three, and I'm going to quit. I need to hurry. What have we decided about Jesus? He's now on the fast track to the cross. He has submitted to the Father. The disciples have fled. Judas has betrayed him. Even the secret disciple, likely Mark, had fled. Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, that secret disciple who had been watching what was going on in the garden, he fled too. And now we get to verse 53, and Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin. And they are questioning him. The chief priests are hurling insults at him. They try to piece together false witnesses. But because the law says it has to be in the mouth of two or three witnesses, they couldn't get their story together. Nobody was agreed. They're trying to get Jesus tried and convicted, but they struggled to do that. The chief priest hollers at Jesus, aren't you going to say anything? The Bible says he just kept silent. And then Jesus does something himself. He puts Israel on trial. He turns the table. He was so good at this. In Mark 14, 62 through 65, Jesus says to them, the day is coming that you'll see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. You know what Jesus was saying to them? You think you're trying me? The day is coming when I'm going to return. And I'm going to sit at my Father's right hand. And you are going to be the ones that are going to be tried. The high priest wanted a decision. But Jesus is now the judge, and they are on trial. But they, did, they agreed that he deserved death. And finally, there's Peter on trial. He had professed and confessed, I won't fail. But we read in 66 through 72 of Mark chapter 14, that as a matter of fact, before the rooster crowed, Peter had denied Jesus three times. The paradoxical Peter, he's 
strong and I can do this. And yet he's weak and he fails. Every one of us can relate to that. I uh, went way too fast, but I'm going to bring this to a close. I want you to listen really, really closely. Pastor Clayton, you can come if you would, please. As a matter of fact, why don't you all stand with me? I'm going to put this together. Three scenes. Incredible value. Please, please listen closely. Watch. Three scenes. Incredible value placed on Jesus by the woman. But the other is concerned that it costs too much. Perfect trust Jesus had in the Father. The trial of Jesus, the trial of Peter, the tables turn, the trial on the people. The whole text of Mark 14, listen, puts us on trial. For months, we have taught through the gospel of Mark. We've studied the miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. We've heard the disciples say, wow, who is this man? And even the winds and the waves, they obey him. heard him speak with authority. And now we come to the cross, the reason he came. And we ask ourselves the question, is he really who he said he was? Is he really the son of God? That's he's sitting, he's sitting there on the judgment seat. Are you the son of God? You've spoken. Is he the son of God? How many believe he's the son of God? If he is, then we have to answer these three questions. How much do we value him? If he's the son of God, are we willing to pour everything out? Everything. I'll pour out my plans. I'll pour out my future. I'll pour out what I want. I'll pour out my selfishness. Or are we trying to hold on to some stuff or some things or some sin. If you really believe he's the son of God, if I really believe he's the son of God, how valuable is he? Am I really willing to pour out my best? And, and then we have to ask the question, how much do we trust him? Now we can say he's the son of God, but how much do we trust him? We trust him enough to to yield our futures to him? Do, do we trust him enough to yield our success to him? Do we trust him enough to yield our children's favorites and activities to him and trust that he will care for them? Do we trust him enough to give our children to him knowing that he promises to keep what we commit to him against that day? He's really the son of God. How much do we value him? How much do we trust him? Or are you following him at a distance? Listen, the evidence is in. I want to take the words of the high priest. High priest tore his garments and he said, what, are, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. 
Look at these next four words. What is your decision? He's asking everybody in that room, what is your decision? What do we do with him? What do we do with him? It's your decision. And so today we have to ask ourselves that same question. What is our decision? Do we value him more than anything? Do we trust him with our lives? And what is our decision? What are we going to do with him now that we say he's the son of God and he is the most valuable thing to us and we trust him impeccably? What is our decision? What changes are we going to make in our lives? Bow your heads with me if you would. Maybe you're here today and, and, and you're being forced to make a decision by the Holy Spirit. But here's the deal. If you say Jesus is the Son of God, then your, your decision is, am I going to serve him or not? Does you no good to believe that he is and yet not serve him? So maybe you're here today and you've never committed your life to his lordship. You've never said, Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to receive you into my life. I want to make you the Lord of my life. I want to serve you. I want to obey you. I want you to forgive me and come and live inside of me. If you've never done that, but today you say, Pastor Kevin, I want to do that today. I believe he's the son of God and I want to give my life to him. Anyone who would slip up a hand right where you're at and say, that's me today. I want to give my life to him today. Anyone in this room, anyone in this place, anyone in this room. Let me ask you a second question then. How many would say I'm a believer? He is the son of God and I placed my faith in him. But if I'm honest with myself, I haven't valued him like I need to value him. Or I haven't trusted him like I need to trust him. And just right where I'm at with an upraised hand, I'm going to say from this day forward, with God's help, I'm going to place higher value on him than I ever have before, the highest value. And I'm going to trust him completely. How many would raise your hands with me? Holy Spirit, this text is more than a story of the passion. It is a challenge to our hearts. It is the sword of the Spirit dividing asunder soul and spirit, the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And I confess to you that there are times that I have not lived my life you having the highest value. And if I'm going to follow you, I have to be willing to pour everything I have on you. I confess that there have been times that I have not fully trusted you. I've trusted you as long as things look good and if they didn't, I quit trusting tried to make it work myself. But today I want to I want to submit to your will. So thankful Jesus that I'll never have to wrestle with what you wrestled with. I wrestle with my fleshly desires, you wrestled
because you were holy and perfect and did not want to be marred by sin, but you became sin for us. If you could trust the Father in that, I can trust the Father to care for me and meet my needs. You trusted the Father. You submitted. You died a horrible death. But he was faithful. Though there was a grave that you filled for three days, the Father could be trusted three days later. That grave was empty. So Lord, our trust in you may lead us to a grave of sorts. But ultimately, our trust in you will lead us to a resurrection that's greater than anything we've ever known before. So we confess our desire to trust you, to grow in our trust of you. We make our decision today. We will value you above all else trust you without reservation because you are the son 